Okay, we continue now with the discussion of the greater discourse at Asapura, the Maha Asapura Sutta. And in this discourse, the Buddha is explaining to the monks the course of practices or the training which transforms one into a true samana, a true ascetic. These are the dhammas or practices that make one worthy of the title samana, monk, recluse, ascetic. And the Buddha's explanation takes the form of a step-by-step sequence of training, a series of stages of practice, each of which builds upon the predecessor. So when we have this series of, of series of steps of training, each preceding step serves as a basis or foundation upon which the later steps of the training can arise. And thus the Buddha begins his exposition with the qualities of shame and fear of wrongdoing, kiri and otapa, which are the two roots of morality, of sila. Then he comes into the training in sila proper, purified conduct of body, speech, and mind, and purified livelihood. Then we come upon a series or a set of four steps which we can call transitional steps from sila to samadhi. These are practices which are intended to gradually internalize the kind of purity being established by sila. Sila is concerned primarily with conduct, with bodily conduct, verbal conduct, and mental conduct is included here to the extent that the mind is the origin of bodily and verbal actions. But to actually eliminate the defilements as they, they arise in the mind, it's not sufficient merely to observe precepts or rules of conduct, but there has to take place a systematic, methodical training of the mind. And here the Buddha is explaining the practice that's particularly suited for the monks. And so he takes certain practices which are to be undertaken by those who have entered upon the homeless life. And now I have to make a certain qualification to what I just said. I said that we should see this training as a series of steps that arises one 
based upon another. But actually that's not completely true, since ideally all of these practices should be undertaken together. And in fact, to practice some of them with any success, one has to practice the others as well. If one thinks that, for example, one can practice restraint of the senses at an earlier time, then later one, pract one can practice mindfulness and full awareness, it won't just work. Because restraint of the senses, one aspect of restraint of the senses is the practice of mindfulness and full awareness. If one is not developing mindfulness and awareness, then one, one will not be able to restrain the senses. If one is not practicing mindfulness, then one will not observe moderation and eating. So even though the way the sutta is explained by the Buddha, it seems as though one step comes first, another after that, then another still later after that. In the actual living practice of these different dhammas or observances, many of them intermesh and interlock so one practices them all together. But just for ease of explanation, the Buddha has to set them out as though there's a certain sequence, a sequential series involved. So particularly when we come to these four transitional steps, I think we should see them as all meshing together and practice simultaneously. And so last time we examined the section on restraint of the senses. And now we come to the, at the end of that section, the Buddha is explaining, speaking as though the next step will rise in dependence on restraint of the senses. He says, now bhikkhus, you may think we are possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing and so on, and we guard the doors of our sense faculties. That much is enough, and you may rest content with that much. Bhikkhus, I inform you, I declare to you, you who seek the monk status or the status of an ascetic, do not sh fall short of the goal of the ascetic life while there is still more to be done. And what more is to be done? Now we come to section 9 on Bojane Matanyuta, which means literally, Matta means measure in Sanskrit, matra. And New, the verb root new is, means to know. So, bojane matanyuta means literally knowing the measure or the right amount in eating. And this is knowing how much is sufficient to maintain the body in good health, 
to maintain one's strength without overeating either because, because of enjoyment of taste or in order to make the body strong, especially strong and muscular like an athlete and thereby by overeating then one indulges greed and craving for food and also when the body takes in too much food for one who's practicing a meditative life then the mind becomes drowsy and sleepy and it becomes difficult to practice intensive meditation. So therefore those who are especially who are practicing intensive meditation have to be careful to take just the right amount of food, enough to satisfy the hunger and to maintain physical strength, to sustain one's health, without inclining to overindulgence, which will induce drowsiness, dullness, sleepiness. And this happens when one is training the mind in meditation. Then there arises through, on a trial and error basis, there arises a kind of <coughs> intuitive knowledge when one is eating, when one reaches the right point, a kind of message comes to the mind, this much is enough. And then one knows that at this point one should stop. And if one doesn't heed that message <laughs> and overeats, then the next day the message will light up with neon, neon lights to make the point even more clearly. <clears throat> and the Buddha explains this practice here in the Sutta in terms of a standard formula which is taught even to novice monks from the day of their ordination as the daily reflection on the use of the alms food. This is one of the four reflections that is supposed to be done by monks every day on the four requisites. The four requisites are the robes, the food, dwelling place, and then kilampasa or medicinal requisites. And the formula for reflecting on food comes down in, as it does in this passage of the Sutta. Reflecting wisely, pati sankha yoniso. We will take food neither for amusement nor for intoxication. That is, it's not the monk in training or the practicing meditator, doesn't take the food the way people who are out for just enjoyment take food as a kind of social activity for amusement, like they have nothing to do, so let's go out to the restaurant or to the cafe or to the hotel, and even though we're not hungry, but we just get some snacks and sit around and chat, and so the food is being eaten not for any necessary essential purpose, 
but just as a kind of amusement. And one doesn't take the food for intoxication. This means not drunkenness, but intoxication with the flavor. One enjoys this taste and that taste. So even if one is not hungry, one just wants to experience a variety of new or exciting flavors. And so one tries, maybe if there's Thai food or Chinese food or Japanese cuisine or French cuisine. And so one eats all different types of food, experimenting this, a taste of this, a taste of that, just to enjoy a variety of flavors. And one doesn't take the food for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness. I think here the intention, as explained in the commentary, is that one doesn't eat large quantities of food in order to make the body very strong and muscular. And perhaps in the case of women, maybe nowadays the <laughs> feminine ideal is different than in <laughs> ancient India. <laughs> nowadays, maybe because of the influence of the European fashion, fashion models and movie stars, the stress is on having thin bodies <laughs> but in ancient India, the ideal of feminine beauty was plump bodies. <laughs> and so men would eat a lot in order to have, perhaps also it was a sign of prosperity and high status in society, to have huge, <laughs> huge waistlines and plump bodies. And so wealthy people would eat a lot in order to get fat, to show their high status. And men would eat in order to become very strong and muscular. And women would eat a lot because that was the ideal of feminine beauty. <laughs> plump, plump, round body. And so the Buddha begins by mentioning four purposes that are to be rejected in consuming food by the true ascetic or one who's training along the path to liberation. Then he mentions four positive reasons for taking the food. That is for the endurance and continuance of this body. Actually, these two are almost synonymous. I think the commentaries try to explain some difference, but in effect, they mean the same thing. Titya yapanaya, for sustaining it and keeping it going. For ending discomfort, that is for ending the discomfort of hunger, and also for ending discomfort of weakness and illness which might ensue if one doesn't take a sufficient quantity of food. And then the fourth reason is for assisting or supporting the brahmacharya, the holy life. That is, one takes the food in order to maintain one's energy and vigor 
so that one could practice the holy life, the Noble Eightfold Path. And I think this passage on reflection of food, even in this passage, we can see very beautifully the way the Buddha sets out the middle way. That is, in the time of the Buddha, people who were living worldly lives, as I said, would consume large quantities of food. The Brahmins were especially well known for this, since they would often get invitations from the kings and royal ministers and the wealthy people to perform rituals and sacrifices. And an essential part of the sacrificial ritual was for the supporter who's having the ritual performed would have to offer a meal to the Brahmins. And so the Brahmins, who were well known for their learning and their skill in performing the rituals, would go from one day to another, they would have invitations to, to meals, and they would consume large quantities of rich, sumptuous food, and so they became very well-built and plump. And on the other hand, the non-Buddhist summoners, particularly the Jains and the Ajivakas, would adopt extreme practices of self-mortification. They would reject, they would attempt to sustain themselves just by reducing their intake of food just to the minimal quantity possible. Even they would go for long periods of fasting, sometimes fasting for one day, alternate days, three days at a time, a week at a time, until they would just become emaciated, virtual skeletons. And they believed that by rejecting the consumption of normal meals, that this was the path to sanctity, or to holiness. But here the Buddha sets forth this middle way in which, like the ascetics, he rejects taking food in excessive quantities for the sake of enjoyment or beautification. But he does not accept the ascetic practice of reducing the intake of food in ways which impair the health and strength of the body. And so we see the middle way in these rejection of the four wrong purposes in taking the food and the recognition of the four wise purposes in taking the food. And then the Buddha expresses the same point in a different way that one considers Thus, I shall terminate old feelings or old pains. That is, the pain of hunger without arousing new feelings or new pains. That is, pain of discomfort which comes from overeating or also the commentary explains that this could be understood to mean without generating more craving which will bring about new existence and continued feeling in, or continued pain in the new existences. 
and I shall be healthy and blameless and shall live in comfort. Okay, so by reflecting in that way, one lays the foundation for moderation and eating, or knowing the right measure, the right amount in eating. But it's not sufficient merely to perform this reflection, but ideally the disciple in training, when he's practicing, when he's eating his meal, he does it as a type of meditative practice. And so, while eating, he will be practicing mindfulness and full awareness, as we'll see when we come to that section. He'll be aware of taking the food, putting it in the mouth, chewing, tasting, swallowing, and by this attentiveness to the process of eating, one develops a very, very sharpened inner awareness of just how much food the body actually needs to remain in good health. And so with this refined sensitivity that is cultivated by eating with mindfulness, when one reaches that right point where one has sufficient food and should stop in order to avoid overeating, the mind just gives the signal by itself, that's enough. Okay, and so that is the practice of moderation in eating. And now the Buddha says, you may think this is enough. You may think, monks, that we are possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing and so on. We guard the doors of our sense faculties and we are moderate in eating. That much is enough and you may rest content with that much. I inform you, I declare to you, you who seek the ascetic status, do not fall short of the goal of asceticism while there is still more to be done. And now we come to the next section. This is on wakefulness or literally it's devotion to wakefulness. Jagaryanu Yoga. And this is the practice which the Buddha prescribes for a monk who is devoting himself full-time to the cultivation of a kamatana, a meditation subject. And it actually seems to me, I have to say, that even though the section on wakefulness in the sequence is presented here, but it seems that it would actually be more appropriate if this section were to come 
were to be inserted into the later section on the abandoning of the five hindrances. Of course, this is actually, this section describes the way the meditation should be developed to overcome the five hindrances. And so, because it's presented here, I'll explain it here, but it seems more sensible to read this passage in direct conjunction with paragraph 12 and 13 on the abandoning of the five hindrances. Okay, so the Buddha says, what more is to be done because you should train thus. We will be devoted to wakefulness. During the day, while walking back and forth and sitting, we will purify our minds of obstructive states. The obstructive states, I think the expression is avaraniya dhamma, are just the five hindrances themselves. So, when the Buddha says while walking back and forth and sitting, he means when sitting in meditation, developing a meditation subject, one is purifying one's mind of the five hindrances, the mental obstruction. Then after a period of sitting, then one will do a period of chankmana, walking back and forth, again purifying the mind of the five hindrances. And then during the day, one is just alternating sitting, period of sitting, period of walking meditation, period of sitting meditation, period of walking meditation, all the time attending to the meditation subject in order to purify the mind of the five hindrances. Then in the, the night is divided into three watches, three periods. I guess this would correspond, I'm not sure exactly how it would correspond to our time, maybe from the first watch might be from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. the middle watch from 11 p.m. to 3 p.m. the last watch maybe from 3 p.m. to 6 a.m. and so during the first watch of the night again the meditator passes the time just walking back and forth, purifying the mind, or sitting in meditation, purifying the mind. Then in the middle watch of the night, he can lie down on the right side in what is called the lion's posture. That is, one places the forearm under the head and one leg over the other leg, lying down just the way a lion is supposed to lie down. <coughs> On the right side, mindful and fully aware. So one lies down, even in the act of lying, applying mindfulness. As one is about to lie down, 
one makes the mental note intending to lie down then one attends mindfully with full awareness to all of the movements in the act of lying down when one is lying then one just attends very loosely to the body in the lying position after making a mental note that one should rise up at a particular time if we have an, a clock an alarm clock now <laughs> one can set the alarm clock but the ideal meditator who develops keen experience in the practice is able just to make a mental determination let me wake up at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. and as soon as that time arrives he'll wake up spontaneously and then after waking up then he in the last watch of the night the third watch of the night that is from 3 or 4 a.m. until dawn then he passes the time walking back and forth and sitting purifying the mind of obstructive states okay so that is the practice of devotion to wakefulness it's a very rigorous practice and the way it's described here it's described according to the ideal pattern for the monk or meditator who is devoting himself to full-time practice and so in the forest monasteries or in the meditation centers where people are practicing full-time meditation then their minds will not be diverted to any external activity or just the minimal amount of external activity just for taking meals, washing, bathing, washing the clothes, and taking care of day-to-day -day necessities. But the rest of the time, the mind should be fully devoted to this subject, the meditation practice. And in this way, gradually, the mind becomes purified of these obstructive states. And now the Buddha concludes this passage <coughs> repeating that same stock phrase because you may think thus now we are possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing now we are moderate and eating and we are devoted to wakefulness that much is enough and you may rest content with that much I inform you, I declare to you you who seek the monk status do not fall short of the goal of monkhood or ascetic, the ascetic status while there is still more to be done and now he explains the next passage as if the practice of mindfulness and awareness was somehow something additional to the cultivation of this wakefulness but actually the practice of mindfulness and awareness is an aspect of wakefulness and also mindfulness and awareness is to be cultivated in order to practice the restraint of the sense faculties and moderation and eating but the Buddha sets out this separate section on mindfulness and full awareness 
in order to show in detail how mindfulness is to be applied to all the variety of little activities, minor activities, that will take place in the day-to-day life of the monks or a full-time meditator. And here we have these two terms that are almost always used in close conjunction or that are almost always used in conjunction or close association. That is sati and sampajanya. Sati is generally translated mindfulness and sampajanya is translated sometimes full awareness or clear comprehension. And though the two almost always work together, there is a slight difference in their their nuance or their exact meaning. Mindfulness we can perhaps explain as attentiveness to what is taking place from moment to moment in the course of one's own immediate experience. It is the making present, the bringing into presence of mind of what is happening inside oneself and around oneself. Whereas Sampajanya is the understanding or comprehension of what one is doing. Of these two, I would say that Sati, mindfulness, has the more basic or elementary function. That is, mindfulness is what makes one's experience, what brings one's experience or one's action to one's attention. It is the opening up of the mind to one's immediate experience. And Sampajanya is once that experience or activity is made present by mindfulness. Once mindfulness opens the mind up to one's experience, Sampajanya is what grasps the significance of that experience, what grasps the meaning of it, or what discerns the significant aspects of the experience. So we can say that Sampajanya will be a kind of seed or germinal form of Panya, of wisdom. The commentaries, which always like to investigate these concepts in great detail, 
explain Sampajanya clear full awareness in terms of four types of full awareness. They call it full awareness of purpose, the purpose of one's action. That is, investigating, discerning, what is my purpose in engaging in such an activity? For what reason am I undertaking this activity? Why am I doing this? And once one investigates the purpose, then one is in a position to reject any activity which is without a truly beneficial purpose. If there's some, one is planning to engage in some action and one stops and pauses to reflect what is the good or benefit of doing this? That is the practice of clear comprehension of purpose. One asks what is the reason, then one discovers this is my purpose. Is it a worthwhile purpose? If it's a worthless purpose, then one stops the action. No reason to continue with it. If it's a worthwhile purpose, then one can proceed with the action. The second type of clear comprehension is called clear comprehension of suitability or of suitable means. That is, once one understands one's purpose and one accepts the purpose, then one stops to reflect what is the most effective means of achieving that purpose. Am I going about achieving my goal in the right way, the most effective way? Or should I instead try to do it in a different way? So those are the first two types of clear comprehension which are most concerned with day-to-day -day activities. Then the third type of clear comprehension is called gochara sampajanya, which means clear comprehension of the range or object of meditation. And this is explained to mean this type of clear comprehension applies particularly to a meditator who is developing a meditation subject. And what it means is that when that meditator is going about engaging in various activities, once he determines his purpose and the suitable means, then he should engage his mind back to the meditation subject and not let the mind wander away from the meditation subject. The commentary gives the example of monks who are living in a monastery, practicing meditation, then there comes the time of the day when they have to go into the village to collect their alms, their pindapata. And so they will stop the formal meditation. In a sense, they put down off their mind 
the regular meditation subject and they have to collect, they get their alms bowl, put on their robes, leave the monastery. Then once they start walking from the monastery to the village, then they should return the mind to the subject of meditation. Instead of letting the mind wander and think, ah, what a nice day, and maybe I will get some delicious alms food, and I wonder maybe I can chat with the people in the village and learn what's happening <laughs> in the village. So instead of letting the mind wander and stray, then the mind should be engaged in the gotra, that's in the range or subject of meditation. And if that is too difficult, then the monks should just be mindful of walking to the village. Just have the attention or mindfulness set up on the body. Then the fourth aspect of clear comprehension is called clear comprehension of non-delusion, a samoha sampajanya. Or we can loosely render this expression clear comprehension of reality. This is clear comprehension where it actually transforms into vipassana or panya where the mindfulness and awareness become so highly developed and refined that even when the meditator might be walking or engaging in activity, eating, bathing, going to sleep, still, since the attentiveness is so sharp and so refined, he'll be seeing everything in terms of impermanence dukkha and egolessness. Just even the day-to-day -day activities just become a continual unfolding of the process of insight. But here in this paragraph we're concerned with the preliminary practices or the foundational practices for gaining samadhi. And so I think here we could understand that the first three types of clear comprehension would be more applicable, not that fourth type. And so here the Buddha shows in a very sweeping and detailed way how the trainee, the monk or meditator, is to keep the mindfulness and full awareness functioning even in the course of these very ordinary, very simple, very mundane day-to-day -day activities. One should not think that these are just ordinary activities, that the only, the only proper time for the meditation is when one is sitting or doing chakmen, sakmen meditation, but even when walking forward when returning. One should practice full awareness. When looking ahead, 
and looking to the side, one should act in full awareness. That is, one doesn't just look up and look to the side just spontaneously and thoughtlessly, but the mind should be so grounded in this mindfulness that when one intends to look up, one will be aware of the intention to look up, then one will look. If one wants to look to the side, one becomes aware first of the intention, then one will look deliberately. One should practice full awareness when flexing or bending in and extending the limbs. That is when one has to reach out for something, before reaching out one becomes aware of the intention to reach out and one extends the arm deliberately with full awareness. When drawing in the arm, one does so intentionally and deliberately with full awareness. When rising, getting up, well that will come later, when sitting and so on. Okay, so when flexing and extending the limbs. Okay, when putting on the robes and carrying the outer robe and bowl, one acts in full awareness. Then here, one acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting. Maybe somebody asks, what's the difference between eating and consuming food? Maybe you never knew that there was a difference. But actually, for some reason, which I have to say, I've never really understood. In Pali, there are two different words for eating which are used in relation to two different types of food. One is bojana, which is supposed to apply to five types of food. It would apply to things like grains, like rice, wheat, barley, I guess, rye, um, anything made from grains, like noodles, macaroni, all of this is bojana, then meat and fish get included as bojana, and milk products are bojana. <laughs> then the other type of food is kadana, which will include just about every kind of vegetable, fruit, nuts, um, excuse me? Pulses. I think pulses are also cardinal. I think so. I'm not sure about that. So, I'm not quite sure. Often, that the two terms are translated. Bojana is translated soft food, and kadana is hard food. So, some of the bojanas are can be actually harder than some of the kadanas. So, I don't think that translation is very exact. But anyway, whatever the explanation is, there are these two different words for eating which are used in relation to two different types of food 
And so, if it comes, if one is taking rice and fish, one does not bhattankatati. If one says that to somebody, a pandita who knows Pali, he'll laugh. <laughs> you can say palankatati. He's eating the fruit, but bhattang bojati. He's eating the rice. And so here we have when eating rice or any other soft food, when drinking any liquid, when consuming <laughs> any hard food, anything called kadana, and when tasting, that's just taking something to taste it. Also when you taste, you inevitably eat or drink. <laughs> but that's just singled out, I think, because sometimes one takes something just to experience the flavor without consuming bite after bite. But in all of these cases, one should be eating and drinking and so on with full awareness. That is when, the way this is explained in the Mahasi Sayadaw, the Burmese system of meditation, is explained in great detail. That when you're sitting down to eat, when you're intending to take a mouthful, then you think intending. Then one stretches the hand, stretching. When one puts the hand into the food, putting. When you're making a mouth, making a mouthful, making a mouthful. Then lifting, you're aware of lifting, lifting. Putting into the mouth, putting, putting into mouth. Then tasting the food, tasting, tasting. Chewing the food, aware of chewing, chewing. When swallowing the food, swallowing, swallowing. Then intending to take another mouthful, stretching, touching, rolling, lifting, putting in mouth, tasting, chewing, tasting, chewing, swallowing, and so on. That's a very detailed way this practice is explained is explained in the Burmese Vipassana method. But perhaps in a more general way, when eating, one can just be aware of eating, tasting, eating, tasting. And then when one has enough, one should also be aware, satisfied, enough, and then desist. And so, not only eating and drinking become a basis for meditation, but in the next passage, <laughs> even going to the toilet becomes an object of meditation practice for developing mindfulness. When you have to urinate, become aware having to urinate. Having to defecate, aware having to defecate. Going to the toilet, going, going, sitting down, sitting, sitting, then urinating, defecating. <laughs> I won't describe the rest. <laughs> okay, so these are major activities of the day. Then the next passage, just in one clause, the Buddha groups many different minor activities together. 
when walking, standing, sitting, lying down to go to sleep, when waking up, talking and keeping silent in all these activities, all these diverse activities, one should practice full awareness or clear comprehension based upon mindfulness. Okay, and that is the section on mindfulness and full awareness. And so that will complete our explanation of these four transitional steps that lead from, that build upon this foundation of sila or virtue and are heading in the direction of samadhi, concentration or purification of mind. Okay, I will stop the explanation here, and if there are any questions, then please, please ask. Thank you. Well, that passage is actually dealing with the noble disciples who have reached some attainment of the paths and fruits. That's not concerned with the preliminary practice. That's concerned with those who have already reached attainment. Whereas the practices that are described in these four sections of the sutta are concerned with the practices which are leading towards the attainment of the path.
say 11 to 3 or 11 to 4 a.m. Yeah. Yeah, but here the person that's described is training the mind through all of these uh, this other part of the night, the first watch and the last watch of the night, in meditation. And also what happens, you should not think after hearing me read this and explain this passage, that you go home and you think, now I'm just going to cut down to four <laughs> hours of sleep. The Buddha says <laughs> one should sleep only in the middle watch of the night. Since when one is engaged in other activities, then the body naturally it will need more sleep. But when the mind is training in meditation, day and night, then the need for the sleep just spontaneously it reduces. So that one doesn't have to force oneself to cut down on the sleep. It's just that the mind gets the refreshment it needs from the practice itself. So that the practice has a, a, the effect of rejuvenating and refreshing the whole nervous system so that one just requires a few hours and even it becomes difficult even to sleep more than four or five hours. It just becomes a natural development. And so, but <laughs> sometimes at the Burmese meditation centers, they throw people into this routine <laughs> so that at the beginning it's very difficult. So when one enters the intensive retreat at the Burmese center, as soon as you come in the first day, you're only allowed to sleep the four, four hours. <laughs> and so during the first days or a week of a retreat, the people have a lot of time, a lot of difficulty during the day when they're sitting, then they're always drooping off and nodding out and have to struggle to maintain the wakefulness. But after the practice builds up momentum, then just the need for sleep reduces. And even as the practice gains much stronger momentum, then even four hours becomes more than enough. One can reduce it to three hours, sometimes two hours. <coughs> any, any other question? That relates directly to what we dealt with today. Okay, then we will conclude the class today and continue next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.